Amen. So take your Bibles, if you will. Take your Bible and turn to uh, Titus, the New Testament book of Titus, right there before Philemon, after 2 Timothy. The book of Titus. You know, we're, our memory verse for this month, again, is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. According to his mercy, he saved us. And I know that says mercy there, but I want you to look at verse number 11 of, of Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The Bible says, for the grace of God, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And verse 15 says, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Let no man despise. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again uh, for the opportunity to be here. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you bless the reading of your word. Lord, it is in your word that we find power. It is in your word that we find strength, Lord. And it is in your word that we, can, we find conviction, Lord, that brings us closer uh, into a relationship with you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that your word will not return void. I know that you've promised that, that it won't, but we readily recognize that this morning. And I pray, Lord, that... Uh, you hide me behind the cross, Lord, as I share what you've given me. And at the same time, help me to be surrendered completely so that my uh, my me as, as the messenger can be as part of the message here, Lord. And and Lord, and not by any any stretch of the imagination, Lord, can I offer anything to these words, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that you use me this morning, that you use all of us here and and get our hearts in unison. Help us to be tuned in to you, Lord. And uh, use us today, Lord, and we ask that you meet with us again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, as I mentioned already in the introduction, uh, if you want to join us in our scripture immersion through the book of Titus, please, please do. I, I believe that these messages will, uh, will ring a little bit more true or a little, a little bit more resonate in your hearts. Uh, but in this book, in this small book, like the rest of the Bible, there are, of course, truths uh, many truths, and it's all true, of course, that are applicable to us even today. These verses are applicable to us today because while it is a letter from Paul to Timothy, we know that to be true, it is also the inspired Word of God. Uh, Peter calls Paul's writings the, uh, uh, the inspired word, the scriptures, the inspired words of God. Paul himself claims that he's preaching for God. And the perseverance of scripture these 2,000 years is, no, is more evidence that these are, in fact, the words of God. Now, most of us are familiar with the Apostle Paul, whom he's the guy who wrote this or the individual who wrote this letter. Uh, he was the chosen vessel used by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, which, of course, includes us. If you look at the beginning of this letter in verse number one of chapter one, Paul, this letter begins with Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then down in verse 4, I think it is, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. So from the Apostle Paul to Titus. So the Apostle Paul, he was a Jew. He was a Jew. He was uh, of the nation whom the gospel would come to first. Titus, however, was completely Gentile. 
He was not half Jew. He was not anything close. He was not even a, Jew, not even a Jewish proselyte. He was Gentile, probably from the island of Crete. Uh, just go up here. This is, the, this is the title of our message today, The Grace of God. So if you want to take notes, write that down. But I want you to also notice this map here. This is the island of Crete right there in the middle um, of, the, uh, of, the, of the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea there west of Israel. That is the island of Crete where it is believed that Titus is from. The other possibility that some commentators believe he might be from Sicily or somewhere over there. Uh, but most believe he's from the island of Crete. And speaking of Crete, if you're there still in chapter 1, it tells us a little bit about what type of, the, what type of people the Cretans were. Even one of their own characterizing them as pathological liars, evil, and lazy gluttons. Look at them, uh, verse number 12. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. So they were pathological liars, evil, and lazy gluttons, or lazy bums, or however you want to look at that. And Paul would eventually send Titus back to Crete to pastor churches there and to plant churches to be a minister among his own people. And Titus himself would know exactly what to expect among those people because he's one of them. The Cretans, however, were probably not in total darkness. Acts chapter 2 verse 11 records Jews from Crete being at Pentecost. So they would have no doubt brought the gospel back to the island of Crete. So it is certainly plausible that the first time Titus heard the gospel was probably from one of those Jews who were at Pentecost, which made an inroad uh, for Paul to get there. And isn't that kind of unique? If you look at the big picture, Acts chapter 2, we have Jews from all over the world coming to Pentecost, all over the known world at that time, coming to Pentecost. And then after Pentecost, they all go back out to the known world, all over this area here. And God uses Paul just to go find them and plant churches among them, starting mostly with the synagogues. The plan hasn't changed all that much today. We're supposed to go out into the world and lead people to Christ. But being that Titus was likely from Crete and was raised similar to those people who lived at the island, Luke, uh, referring to a different uh, area there, he called them lewd fellows of the baser sort. Lewd fellows of the baser sort. So that's what kind of person that um, Titus may have been. But I think that the attributes that that the toughness, if you will, of a person who lives that kind of lifestyle probably poured over into Titus's ministry, much like the Pharisaical, Pharisaical drive of Paul poured over into his Christian ministry. So I see Titus as a hard charging Gentile preacher who was able to endure some things that maybe some others could not endure. He was tough. He was he didn't have to, Paul didn't write to Titus, be strong and in, in, in the grace of the Lord, be tough and endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ like he did Timothy, because Timothy was already cut from that cloth. He was a hard man. And in this letter to Titus, Paul addresses him in the areas that Titus needs. And we can find some application in these things today. And we will not look at all there is in this short epistle, because even though it is short, it is very rich. But we will look at a few things. And we will begin this morning with the grace of God, the grace of God there in chapter two, verses 11 through 15. Quite honestly, if you really think about it, we all need to be reminded about the grace of God. The, I mean, what can we say about the grace of God? Grace is is 
not getting what we deserve. That's like we did something wrong as a child. And not only did we not get a, a spanking, we got, you know, ice cream or something. Uh, God's riches at Christ's expense, the grace, the grace of God. We all need to be reminded about the grace of God because we are in a constant need of the grace of God. And while God's grace can certainly be defined as one attribute of God, as we've studied a, a couple weeks ago on our Sunday evenings, it can be applied in a number of ways. Millions, no doubt. Grace for life, grace for living, grace for the moment, and so forth and so forth. And we'll look at some of these things uh, this, this morning. So look again at verse number 11 of chapter 2. The Bible says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. So number one, we see this morning grace for life. Grace for life. Now what I mean by this is eternal life. Grace for eternal life. This verse states that the grace of God has brought salvation in view of every man. It has brought it in view. It has appeared to every man. Now this does not teach that all men are saved. It teaches that all men can be saved. It's appeared to all men. I mean, think about that. Why would God show the grace or have the grace appear to all men if only just a handful of men can be saved? The grace of God has truthfully appeared to all men. It teaches that all men can be saved. Even those pagan wild men on the island of Crete, young Titus, they can be saved. Jew or Gentile, it does not matter. Because while, get this now, while the presence of sin in man is a factor in salvation... The measure of sin in man is not. Does that sink in? I hope, I hope that comes across clear. The presence of sin in man is a factor in salvation. The measure of sin in man is not. Uh, the Bible states in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Romans 5.20 states that grace far exceeds sin. Grace far exceeds sins. In other words, the presence of sin is a requirement for salvation, it's in the negative, of course, but the measure of sin is not even in the equation. It's not even in there. Whatever sin that we're in, God's grace covers. God's grace has the ability to cover. Where sin abounds, grace did abound much more. Otherwise, if it did not, we would all be on different grounds before God. And that's not what the Bible teaches the scriptures concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. The scriptures have concluded all under sin, Galatians 3.22. You see, the grace of God that brought salvation that has, that has appeared to all men, it is here today. It is here and it is available for all people to receive freely. Turn with me. Keep your place there. Turn with me back a few to Ephesians chapter 2. I had a pastor when I was uh, stationed in Hawaii for a number of years. This is one of his go-to passages every time he preached on the message of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse number 8. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if you don't have this marked, if you're in the habit of underlining, mark this uh, or commit it to memory. Somehow, this is a very important verse for our, for our salvation. The Bible says, for by grace... Are ye saved? For by grace are ye saved through faith. In other words, it's as our memory verse says, it's not by our works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. 
For by grace are you saved. Notice also that while salvation is by grace, it is also through faith. In other words, grace is available to all people because of the cross. Because, as this young lady said, that Christ rose from the grave. And because of that, he has offered eternal life for all people. That grace is for all people, but it's through faith. That grace runs on the rails of faith, so to speak. It has to come through faith. There is no work done on our part, but we must believe. We must believe. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We must believe. It's all paid for, but we must receive it. Friends, I want to point out the fact this morning that the grace of God is enough. It's enough. The grace of God is enough. We don't have to reach some spiritual high ground to reach Salvation, to get salvation, the grace of God is enough. God has descended as man to man and demonstrated that wonderful grace on the cross of Calvary. And that grace that he shed forth in our hearts and shed forth across all of our sin has made salvation possible for every single human being. Every person, every person. The question this morning is, have you received that gift. Have you received God's gracious gift of salvation? I mean, think about that. Know for sure. You can go to church for every day of your life, every single day, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays or Thursdays, but every day. And if you miss that, it's all for naught. Know that you know that you know him. And more importantly, know that he knows you. Do you personally believe in the death, burial, and resurrection? Of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins personally. The Philippian jailer Acts 16, in Acts 16.31, y'all remember that? Paul and Silas was there. They were condemned as Romans. They were beat unlawfully and the jails opened and Paul and Silas didn't leave. And what were they doing at midnight before that happened? They were singing. They had joy in the Lord. And we'll talk about how to get that joy here in a moment. But the jailer was shocked. He's like, how? There's something different about you folks. And he turns to him and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas re reply with, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now, y'all know me. Y'all have heard me a number of times here. I like simple statements. Believe, and you'll be saved. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's simple. God's grace is enough. There's no sin in your mind. There's no sin in your past. There's even no sin in your future that keeps you from the grace of God. But you have to receive it. The grace of God for eternal life. But His grace, as we see in this text here, is not just for eternal life, even though that's, that's plenty. It's not just for the, for the life hereafter. The grace of God is enough for every moment in this life. It's enough for every moment. Notice verses 11 and 12 again of Titus chapter 2, not Ephesians. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So not only grace for life, but grace for living. Grace for living. I want 
This, this next statement, I, I really want, if you're, if you're in a habit of taking notes, it's something that really spoke to me. It's not anything new. There's nothing new under the sun. It's a truth right out of this text of the scripture here. But get this now. The same grace that brings salvation teaches us to be godly. The same faith that brought you salvation teaches you to be godly. It is striking to know, and I used to be in this category, it is striking to know the number of professed Christians who live a life contrary to the grace received. Again, I was one of those. In all reality, the faith required in us to receive God's grace for salvation is the same faith that compels godly living. Titus 1.16, look at chapter 1 again at verse 16. The Bible says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient. And unto every good work, reprobate. I'm saved, but my actions say otherwise. Contrary to the grace that's within us. Now, while our salvation is free and certainly cannot be earned... Praise God, because we'd never earn it. The grace received through faith for salvation, again, is a grace that compels righteous living. True, salvific, saving grace is enough to live right. It's enough. It is enough. It should be our greatest motivator. Grace, it's the greatest motivator. Many times, as I, I was raised in, you know, much around Baptist. I went to a couple different schools that weren't Baptist in, in my childhood, but for the most part, Baptist in the South. So there's a lot of, you know, some strictness that goes along with that. And some of those have the right reasons. And if we if we're not careful, we look at those reasons and they replace the, the reason, if that makes any sense. You got all these boundaries and all these do's and the don'ts, and we get stuck around those things. We get wrapped around those things, and we don't see why we're doing them. We find ourselves being motivated because others think we should keep those standards. That is not the Bible way. That is not God's way. Grace is our motivator. If that's your motivator, and I'll be honest, it used to be my motivator, it only goes so far, and you're going to just fall away. You're going to go somewhere else. You're going to lead a life that's different and contrary to God. But when grace is your motivator, there's nothing that stops the grace of God. It keeps coming and coming and coming. And when you fall, you realize that God's grace is still there more and more. True grace is incredibly liberating, incredibly liberating. And in this one verse, God, through Paul's letter to Titus, gives us five things that the grace of God teaches us. We could call them characteristic, characteristics of a grace-filled life. I want to point out again that the do's and don'ts that maybe we associate with the Christian life are the cart, not the horse. Right? We, we have guardrails in our lives because of Jesus Christ. I don't do this, not because I, don't, I cannot do that, but because I don't want to do that. And the desire is different. It's not a mandate. It's grace motivated. So I want to say that and be abundantly clear with that before we get to these five things. Again, we could call these things characteristics of a grace-filled life. Look at verse number 12 again, teaching us a few things. Denying, number one, denying ungodliness. Denying ungodliness, they're under graceful living. An ungodly life or an ungodly behavior 
is a life or a behavior that lacks reverence for God. It lacks reverence for God. We are to deny those things. In our behavior, in our lifestyle, we're supposed to separate from those. Ungodliness is not a characteristic of a grace-filled life. Number two, the Bible tells us to deny worldly lust. Now, this is, of course, self-explanatory. We don't like talking about these things. We don't talk about lust. And many times, especially in the deep Southern Baptist churches or however you want to, Southern churches, how about that? We talk about lust and we automatically associate it with sex and all those things like that. It doesn't have to be that way. Lust is any desire that replaces your desire for God. It's any desire that consumes you, that, that controls you. We should not allow our desires for earthly things to be greater than our desire for godly things. We should be consumed by the things of God. Paul, in one of his later letters, uh, ended to the church there, I think in Philippians, encouraged them to be addicted to the saints, to be addicted to the church, to be addicted to the things of God. That's where our addiction should be. These are the things that should consume us. So giving in to worldly lust is not a characteristic of a grace-filled life. Number three, he tells us to live soberly. Now, this is more than just talking about alcohol and things like that. This is simply saying that the grace of God within us breeds a calm spirit, a calm and sober spirit, one that is discreet and temperate. That doesn't mean we can't get riled up for certain things, but for righteous things. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. Righteous anger. But for the most part, we're, we are to have a temperate spirit. Sober living, being sober-minded, is a characteristic of a grace-filled life. I think I've mentioned that many times before, but if we were to take a, a can of soda and we were to shake it all up, and I would come and poke it in the side with a, with a knife, and I can point it that way because I won't point it this way. It'd go, I can probably hit you, Brother Walker. I can probably get away back there with that thing. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you. <laughs> But it go everywhere. But if you take a bottle of V8 and shake it up all day long, you poke it all day long. It's just going to pour it out. It doesn't get riled up. That's the fruit of the Spirit that we should have in our lives. We can get poked left and right. But like the Lord, we just keep focused on His will and keep going on. Live soberly. And then number four, live righteously. This one, along with living godly, uh, these last two are very, very similar but living righteously is defined, I thought this was interesting, as living agreeable to the law. Living agreeable to the law. That's what righteous living is. The Bible states in 1 John that God's laws are not grievous to us. It's not grievous to God's children. God's laws are not grievous to God's children. Right? God's children should love to keep the law. What does the Old Testament say many times in Psalms and Proverbs? David, oh, how I love thy law. Oh, how I want to meditate upon that law. If we're right with God, we love those commands. We love the law of God. Christ-like living, or uh, simply doing what is right, rather, is a characteristic of a grace-filled life. And then lastly, in that, in that verse there, number 12, live godly. Again, closely related to living righteously, I believe living godly for the Christian is more personal. This is where righteous living has everything to do with the external. I believe this living godly has everything to do with the internal. It's personal. You and I should have a desire to be more like him, more like Christ. He is our goal. Christ-like living is a characteristic of a grace-filled life. So do these five attributes... 
There's many others, by the way. But do these five things describe our life in Christ? Are they attributes of our life? And this is between you and the Lord, but is there any evidence of grace in your life, in your heart? Does His grace reign in your heart and in your life? I am, I am not any better than you. I am, I am the same. I'm just somebody God used to put up here. I have the same troubles and trials that you do. I fly off the handle sometimes, unfortunately, just like other people do. But we all need His grace. We all need His grace, and we need these attributes to define us. And before we move on, I think it's important to know that these attributes and many other attributes of the Christian life is not something we muster up in the morning. It's not like getting up in the morning as a soldier, I'm going to do my best and trim a minute off my five-mile run. It's nothing like this. True grace is not something that we, that we achieve. It's something we receive. They are God-giving. Remember, grace is something we receive through faith. However, the Bible does state in James 4, 6, that God resists the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. We want God's grace, yes. We don't want God to resist us. God gives grace to those who are humble enough to live by faith. In other words, when we purposely and deliberately, on purpose now, Yield to his leading, yield to his word, he gives us grace for living. Because look at that at a very practical mindset. When I don't live by the word, I'm saying that I know how to live better than God knows how for me to live. That is pride. God resists pride. But when I yield my will to the will of God and he teaches me, even though I don't know what tomorrow holds and I'm just trying to follow him, those mistakes that I make, God gives me grace. But if I make those same mistakes over here when I'm, I can do this, there's resistance from God. I do not need resistance from God. I'm, it's hard enough, right? We need God's grace. He gives us grace for living. You see, pride can easily be described as living our lives according to our prerogatives and not to His. Friends, we need His grace. We need His grace. Not just for salvation, but for every moment in life. We need His grace. I challenge you this morning to trust Him in the big things. Trust Him in your, in your PCS moves or your big ticket items and your, in your birth of a new child or, or your child going away for college. Trust Him in those big things. But trust Him also in the little things. Trust Him on the way to work in the mornings. Trust Him in all things. God does not desire to resist you. He does not desire to resist you. And the more we live humbly before Him, the more grace He gives for living. The more we recognize Him, what's that, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, acknowledge Him in all thy ways, and He will direct thy paths. The more we acknowledge Him, the more He gives us guidance. The more we live humbly, the more He gives us grace. And this grace is not just for eternal life. It's not just for living. It's also for looking. I, I enjoyed this, this alliteration here, Brother Tyler. Grace, God's grace for looking. Look at verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Are we looking for the return of Christ? Are we excited about the return of Christ? 
I mean, think about it. We go through our days many times, and I'm guilty. I have been through many 24-hour periods and not thought one time about the return of Christ. That should not define us. We should have a goal to be looking for the return of Christ. You know, the blessed hope of Christ, His return, it's a powerful thing. Hope is a powerful thing. Most of us know and understand the power of hope even in this life. Hope keeps the light on in the dark, so to speak. Hope keeps the candle burning on the inside. When all else is falling away, everything is against us. Hope keeps you alive. Hope keeps you moving forward. A biblical hope can do even more. A biblical hope is more than I hope it doesn't rain today. A biblical hope is one that is placed and focused on great certainty. I hope the Lord returns. We have a promise that the Lord's returning. So our hope are in the promises of God. That is a biblical hope. A biblical hope is a blessed hope because it's based on facts, on God's promises. And the looking for that blessed hope is the holding on to a known fact in the future in a way that impacts the present. Holding on to something in the future in a way that impacts the present. Putting these verses together, 11 through 13, look at those again. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us some things. And then verse 13, teaching us also to look for that blessed hope. We see that the grace of God teaches us to look for the return of Christ. And this look, this looking, has a significant impact on our living today. It does, I promise you. And while there is much to be said about how we live in the moment, which we just talked about a little bit of that, and we'll, we'll kind of balance between the future and the present here in the moment as we go through this point here, a biblical hope for the future return of Christ will guide us in the present. Because when we allow the grace of God to run its course within us, when we're yielding to the grace of God, it will always, without fail, result in a yearning for the return of Christ. Always, always, always. It's God's grace. It will always result in the yearning for Christ's return. And the more we get a hold of that fact that our Savior is coming back, the more this expectancy seats in us, the more it will affect our current life choices. Amen. Think of our Savior before the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. How is that possible? As a man, of course, he's also God, but as a man, how could he endure the cross with joy? You see, the regardless of the trial and tribulation brought by the cross, Jesus endured those present trials with joy because of an event in the future. Hebrews 12, 2 finishes, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross because he knew the end state. He had faith in the end state. Now, sitting at the throne of God is, is significant enough as a man, but through that we get eternal life. And then also think of Peter. Remember the apostle Peter walking on water? Before he left the boat... When Jesus was coming there, there in the storm, walking on the water, just how cool would that be? How interesting would that be to see that? But before Peter left the boat, he obviously had a desire to leave the boat, right? We usually do things that we desire to do. 
So his desire was to be with Christ on the water. He was in the boat. He wanted to be over there with Christ. So that future goal impacted his action. And practically speaking, while he was yet in the boat, his hope of a future event impacted his current action. Right? It's, it's common sense. And let's be honest, much of life works this way. Much, if not all of life works this way. We make decisions based on a known or expected outcome. I, I turn the car to my key. I expect the engine to turn on. Otherwise, I wouldn't turn the key. I'd go buy another car. Whatever it may be. So I'm, we, all those decisions are based on some future expected or known outcome. And for the Christian, our hope in an expected outcome based upon our faith in the promises of God, releases the power of grace that is otherwise dormant in our life today. Do you get that? So we're looking for the return of Christ, and our faith is focused in that Christ. We live by grace in the moment. Our looking for that cross has a return to that that releases the power of grace in our life. This is how we see God's people sometimes in this life enabled to endure such hard things. We've all been through some tough times, and you look back in your life. Maybe I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but there's times I look back in my life. How did I endure those things? How did I not just fly off the handle? How did I not just give up and give in? The grace of God carried me through those things. This is how people can do these things. We conclude that we couldn't endure what others have. In other words, there's a friend of mine who used to be down in Garmus as a pastor of a church down there, and he had one of his church attendees was one of the refugees that came through Garmish. And uh, he was from Africa, and he was a saved, born-again Christian, surrendered his life to the ministry, wanted to go back to Africa to plant churches to reach his people. Well, his wife wasn't on board. She left him. All kinds of lawsuits. I mean, it was just incredible. I got to meet this man, and he's probably one of the most happiest mans I've ever met in my life. I could not do that. I don't have that grace at, the, at this moment. But he had that grace because he knew something greater was coming. He knew he, the choices he made was for a greater cause. You know, it is believed that after many months of being in a rat-infested prison in Burma, y'all probably heard of the missionary named Adoniram Judson. Uh, he was there for a number of months, almost a year, probably thinking he was at his death. The captor came up to him, one of his captors. There was one that was just really headed out for Mr. Judson. And he came up to him towards the end of there, really months before he was released, after he'd been in there eight, nine months. And he like pokes him and he's speaking in the Burmese language. like, how bright is your future now, preacher? How bright is your future now? What kind of church is you planting now? And on and on and on. And Adonai Johnson got the mustered up the strength through God, I guess, and said the future is as bright as the promises of God. The future is as bright as the promises of God. You see, God gave him grace for that moment. Could we do that right now? Who knows? But with God's grace, we can. The same grace that taught him to look for that blessed hope yielded grace for the moment. And going back to Peter as an example, as long as Peter stayed focused on Christ, we know the story. He was able to walk on water. He took his eyes off Christ. He sunk in the water. But when he kept his eyes on Christ, he was able to defy human abilities and walk upon the sea. Anybody walked upon the sea? 
I thought you were raising your hand. <laughs> I was like, amen, brother. <laughs> but he defied human abilities. Now, you and I may never walk on water, except maybe Brother Shannon. But, but a faithful focus on the Christ of the second coming will enable us to walk above circumstances in this life that will normally drown us. Because we're focused on Jesus. I, had a, I think I've shared this story before, with you before, but as a pastor, you come through some times and trials and you find yourself just looking for some encouragement. And I've reached out to a couple of pastors, either through books or emails. And one of the things, more than one pastor has mentioned, well, when you go through tough times, whether you're a pastor or an individual or Christian anywhere, you focus on the good times. Okay, you're in this. And that kind of resonated with me. I've been in crazy places, you know, where you're over there and it doesn't seem like there's no end. You focus on, man, how, how good it is. And there's a truth to that. And we're, we're holding on to that. But we're not so focused on the coming of Christ as we are focused on the Christ of the coming. There's a difference. Our hope is in a person. So back to that story, when that pastor told me to focus on the good times, I tried that. It just doesn't work. And then I was led to 2 Samuel chapter 6, where David encouraged himself in the Lord. And then these words came to me as I was praying to the Lord, trust me, not audibly, I'm not crazy, but I am Jesus. I do not change. I'm the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. His grace never changes. Again, we may never walk on water, but we, through grace, have the ability to walk above every circumstance in this life that would normally entangle us. Living our lives in the shadow of the brightness of his return is truly the only way to live as a Christian. And the grace we received at salvation, at salvation, is enough. It's all that is needed. In fact, His grace teaches us to do this, to look forward to Him. The question is, again, this morning, are we allowing God's grace to teach us? Are we allowing God's grace to lead us, to look for His blessed hope? He is coming back. Let's hold on to that. And furthermore, is there any evidence, again, of grace in your life? Is there any desire to see the glorious appearing? Do we have a desire in our heart to see the Lord return? Right? Amen? That compels us to live a life filled with grace. Grace for living. Grace for life. Grace for looking. And then as we kind of come to a close here, I want you to notice verse 15. Probably to me the most applicable verse. The Bible says, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So we have grace for life, grace for living, grace for looking, and grace for leading. Grace for leadership. You know, granted, this letter from Paul to Titus was a letter to encourage leadership as a pastor. But as I've learned very quickly, over my, or not very quickly, but over a long time in my life, and maybe slower than most, people are people. People are people. And leadership is leadership. People are people, and leadership are leadership. Leadership is leadership. And leadership has been defined before as simply influence. I know we get all kinds of definitions for it, but in one word it could be described as influence. And while there's certainly much more to leadership, I want to point out that every one of us leads somebody. We all influence somebody. Whether you're a husband or a wife, parent, brother, sister, you all influence somebody. We lead, whether we know it or not, we influence. 
And in this last verse, there are three charges for every Christian, for every Christian. Look at those. Speak, exhort and rebuke. Speak this word. I know we're kind of kind of winding down here, but stay with me just for a few more minutes. This word speak is sometimes translated as the word preach. As a leader, those who have experienced the grace of God should tell others about the grace of God. Number two, the Bible tells us to exhort. Now, this word is very similar to the word John used to describe the Holy Ghost, parakletos in the Greek, the comforter, one who comes alongside of others to help them. We are to encourage each other to abound in the grace. And then number three, rebuke. Knowing that God resists the proud to allow a brother or sister to live a life of resistance is irresponsible. Knowing that God resists the proud and He gives grace to the humble, we are to help others see their need for grace. And truthfully, when the grace of God that is in us begins to have an impact to those around us, that is godly, grace-filled leadership at the base, at the base level. Godly, grace-filled leadership involves these three things. Speak, exhort, rebuke. And while there are many variables in leadership, these three principles will always be present in the grace-filled leader. Always. So as we close, have you experienced the grace of God in your leadership? Does the promise of His return have any impact on your life's choices, choices in the moment? And the greatest question of all, have you through faith received His gift of grace? Do you know Him? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. God's grace is enough.